Hi, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the MMHS 30 podcast. My name is Amy Zutasha, and I am the graphics director for the MMHS, joined by my co-host, Emma Zhang, who is one of our VP events. The McMaster Medicine and Health Society aims to inform and educate our members by acting as a resource for exploring various health-related professions. The MMHS will be having our 30th anniversary very soon. To celebrate this, we will be having three podcast episodes with three different guests to talk about topics related to health and medicine. We are pleased to be kicking off this first episode with Zoha Salam, who is a PhD candidate at the Global Health Program at McMaster. During this episode, we will talk about her academic and professional life, research focuses and advice, and a fun activity. Mm -hmm. Let's get started with some general questions about you and your program. Tell us about yourself. What are your current professional goals, academic pursuits, or hobbies? Yeah, thank you everybody for having me on here. I really appreciate it. So myself, I describe myself, I'm a social epidemiologist. My work looks at the intersection of documentation status or legal status, cultural conceptualizations of healing and illness, and lastly, systemic racism's impact on mental health care access. My PhD work basically looks at how social and structural determinants impact disparities of diagnosis of mood disorders and also accessing care in, among racialized immigrants and refugees. Some professional goals I have, I guess, finishing off my dissertation is like a big one and getting all the papers written out. Um, some academic pursuits. I mean, I, I'm so fortunate this year that I get to teach my own course and I'm very excited about that. We'll talk more about that later in the interview. Some hobbies, I guess. I started embroidery, which is really interesting because my hand-eye coordination and my hands themselves are not that nimble. So it's been an interesting experience trying to like coordinate everything and basically try to make something look pretty at the end of the day. It's a very interesting exercise that I've delved into. Mm -hmm. I can definitely see how your professional and academic pursuits are driven by your own lived experiences. And personally, I think embroidery is really cool as well. And as you said, it practices your henna coordination and makes something aesthetic at the end of it. Yeah, I personally enjoy embroidery as well, although I'm not very good at it, but you know, I give it a shot. And it's nice to hear that you have quite a diverse background. Um, to tap further into this, we'd like to ask what was an extracurricular activity, job, course, or even hobby during university that had the biggest impact on who you are today? That is such a good question. Um, so to that question, there were two events in my life. There was one course that I took um, and I think it was in my fourth year, it was called cross-cultural psychology. I, you know, obviously somebody who's racialized, who's South Asian, I did recognize that the way that my community or my family experienced illness or healing essentially was very distinct from my white peers and counterparts. And, you know, my research area and interest did, doesn't come from a place of intellectual curiosity, I would say, came from a deep-seated place of like grief. So having this course, number one, it was validating, but number two, it was also interesting seeing how psychology or psychiatry essentially conceptualized culture in itself, and it got me really curious. So the cross-culture psych course was one thing, and then the other, I would say like this is the biggest thing that changed the tra trajectory of my career and the way that I think about research and doing research as well was a conference that I went to. 
it is sort of like a flagship conference if you're in cross-cultural psychology. It's called the International Association for Cross-Cultural Psychology. And the one that I went to was in 2018. And this was being held in Guelph, which was really convenient for me because typically this conference is held across globally in different places. I think like the year before they had it in Japan, then the year after the one in Guelph, they had it in Brazil, I think. Um, but yeah, over there, it was really fun. It was really interesting. This was my first time going to a conference. So I had that experience of coming as like a little bright eyed like kid. And I worked at the end of the conference. I ended up working with the chair, Dr. Seba Softar at her research lab, the Center for Cross-Cultural Psychology. And there I had the opportunity of revamping a book, a textbook that actually I used in a course um, for a social psychology course that I took in undergrad. So it was like coming full circle. And from there, I also got to work on some number of really amazing projects. For example, there was a study that we did on goal setting for newly arrived Syrian refugees and looking at what helped them adapt to new life over here in Canada and what helped them achieve their goals. So there was a lot of like motivational interviewing involved and the data was really interesting. And what we ended up finding was that um, as long as they had support from their family members or outside, they were able to get, achieve any goal that they put their mind to. So that was a really wonderful experience, but yeah, that, that conference was really important to me for a number of reasons. One, because like I come from like a super conservative, like South Asian Muslim family. And I remember like telling my dad saying like, look, I had something accepted at this conference. Can I go over there? And he basically said like, if you step foot out of this house, I'm going to disown you. And I argued and I told him like, this is really important for me. In fact, like my undergrad supervisor called and, you know, told my dad like, this is not like what you think it is. It's a really important event. This is really good for her career. And at the end he sort of did give way and I was able to go obviously but I still remember like on the day of like me driving from Windsor to Guelph like I left in tears so this event was important for me for many reasons one like trying to gain autonomy but number two trying to like broaden my scope and get out there in the world and see what there exists. Mm -hmm. I can definitely see how these are really profoundly impactful to both your academic and professional pursuits but also I think the general autonomy side that you mentioned, um, I find that to be quite an interesting experience within racialized folks within psychology. And I'm really glad that you addressed that. Shifting gear to your current program, please tell us about your experiences with the Global Health Program at McMaster. Yeah, definitely. So this is something that most likely that your audience would not like to hear, but I applied to the Masters of Science and Global Health on a dare as a joke from one of my friends that I actually met at that conference on the third day when we had a mixer. Um, so initially after, you know, during undergrad, I was applying to a lot of like clinical psychology PhD programs in the States because I wanted to become a psychologist who worked specifically within the context of like um, newly arrived migrants and cultural conceptualizations of like healing and illness because I speak other languages besides from English but I also understand how deeply important and stigmatized this topic is so I wanted to become that person to step in and be like hi like I'm here I want to help right and then it sort of dawned on me that as my acceptances or interviews sort of happened for the programs that you know many of the problems that newly arrived migrants or those who are racialized like experience come from the system in itself like people are struggling to 
stay here in Canada and not be deported. People are struggling to make sure that their degrees are equivalated over here. They're trying to get work, right? And then there was a very awkward silence one day in my mind that I thought about that, you know, CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy is only going to do so much for my clients at the end of the day. I need to start thinking about policy or more like public health. And so, like I mentioned, I applied to this program as a joke, but the more I started marinating with that thought and letting it permeate, I realized that, you know, maybe a master's of science in global health is what I want to do because it has that policy focus. It has that public health lens focus. And I was very optimistic about it. <laughs> my program itself, it, it's been an interesting experience. I did my master's and I did a thesis looking at teenage Syrian refugees and how they use their social support systems to cope with stressors. And then I got into the PhD program and my work, like I mentioned earlier before, that's what I'm looking at. But what has been the best thing for me is having that autonomy again and doing the type of research that I want to do and, you know, exploring myself alongside with it. So while it has been a journey of healing for myself and autonomy, but it also has been nice to academically challenge myself and think a bit further. Like, for example, like my master's supervisor was a medical anthropologist. So the way that I thought about healing and mental health was completely different from the way that I was taught in my undergrad site, for example. And now my PhD supervisor is a clinical ethicist. And again, my views about literally accessing mental health care has drastically shifted again. So that is something that I have been deeply appreciative from the programs in itself. Immigrant health is especially the policy aspect is so overlooked within uh, the healthcare system, um, as well as how we conceptualize health is such an evolving topic that I find really fascinating personally as well. Yeah, definitely. And uh, yeah, I think it's not only helpful, but quite important to hear how autonomy and mental health can play a role in especially career development and just as an undergraduate student, um, and maybe very helpful in destigmatizing these topics. Um, just to ask a little bit more about the application process to global health, we were wondering what this looked like perhaps for you and if you have any tips for students who may be considering a similar path. Yeah, definitely. So the undergraduate process was pretty straightforward, like you had to have two reference letters, they look at your two last years of your GPA, and they have like a letter of interest or intent, which was pretty short, but in there they ask you to specialize like there's four different streams or three different streams I can't remember here at McMaster if you were to do the course based versus the thesis and you're asked to like identify that early on but you're not set until you actually go into the program. So. What they typically, um, you know, back remembering on my master's cohort, typically a lot of people are, have a lot of volunteering experience, both over here in Canada and abroad. So typically you would come across people who have done missionary work, which I think is really interesting in itself in the context of global health. Um, missionary work overseas teaching as like a nurse as well, for example, or other students would have like a lot of research experience, conference experience, or just um, sometimes their own lived experience too in detailing that within the application process. There's no clear cut formula because I, you know, even like thinking about my cohort and people that I met and interacted with and still am friends with today, it was a really wide diverse group of people. And it wasn't just people who came from like more medical or health sciences fields, like you had people from history, philosophy as well. So, um, and I think that's a good, example of global health in itself, right? It's like we have, we're facing complex problems that require very complex solutions and having a bit of everybody in here lets us see the picture in a very different way, but 
allows us to come up with solutions that are very diverse and multifaceted because you know like i said these are really complex problems that we're facing at the end of the day yeah so for, for sure. some tips sorry yeah. for some tips that i would suggest honestly um be very honest and direct about what you're writing and why you want to do this program borrow from the language that you see on the program website like you see the word like they use equity and whatnot like try to make sure to integrate that into your letter of interest that's really important because it shows that a that you know the language of the program b that you understand its core values and initiatives that they're launching so that's something that i that's a tip that i give to a lot of my students that i mentor who apply to grad school it's like make sure to borrow borrow the language and the goals and initiatives from the program and include that into your letter of interest maybe some research that you've done how does that relate maybe like some personal volunteer experience and again like trying to integrate that in there so that's the number one tip that i would give yeah thank you for sharing that those are some great tips especially with catering to the core values of the program i think that's highly important Going back to your um, experiences within the current program for both masters and your PhD, how has your mental health personally impacted these experiences, such as your ADHD diagnoses? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, for me, I didn't get my ADHD diagnoses until I was in my PhD program, so as an adult. And, you know, when I first got my diagnosis, I was, it was a very bittersweet moment for me, honestly, at, when I first I didn't cry because like, oh no, I have ADHD. It was like, oh, I have ADHD. This explains so much of my life. And I really cried and I reflected back. It's like, how much did I miss out on life? And especially in the academic context, if I had this diagnosis or had the appropriate supports put in place, right? So it was validating for me to have this diagnosis saying like, this wasn't like a moral failing of mine about whatever maybe I have encountered or some days like, but also it was important to have this because it gave, gave me autonomy and like control over my life again. Like, yeah, like, of course, like my behaviors make sense now. So navigating grad school and having an ADHD diagnosis, there's, it's different for everybody, right? But for me, I think at the end of the day, what it was helped was like having a very like concrete system set in place that helped me organize things from the very smallest things, like make sure to send back an email to the student that you're a TA for, for example. Um, but also getting the support from my parents as well, like uh, awkwardly enough, but like we're a very pro mental health household. So I never felt that cultural stigma coming in over here. So, but it's nice having like my mom sometimes text me like, oh, did you remember to take your medication? so you can function normally. So it's always been good in that sense. And, you know, there's a lot of stigma associated even with taking like ADHD medication because it is a controlled substance, right? So people assume that you're abusing it when that's not the case. It's like, I'm not abusing it. I'm trying to be normal as I can. I'm trying to experience life as typical, like non-neurodivergent non people do, right? So, and, the other thing too that I think is really important that I didn't um, include very early on is that people who you know are gendered as female or or those who are also racialized, the symptoms and cautions tend to go overlooked very early on in childhood. Typically, when ADHD is diagnosed, I know that male, white males typically get 
caught very early on because the diagnostic categories and even the way that ADHD is taught within psychiatry or psychology, kind of clinical psychology programs, it's still lagging behind to incorporate more of an intersectional lens of understanding the manifestations and presentations of this diagnosis in itself. So if you're listening to this and you feel like you've had some sort of symptoms, like ADHD is a huge spectrum, right? It's not just that you're super hyperactive, maybe sometimes you're inattentive and there's also other varieties of it too. But if you're listening and you think like, oh, like I may have ADHD, I highly suggest that you try to go to your healthcare provider and delve more into that because who knows, you might have ADHD or you might have something else because ADHD is comorbid with anxiety, um, depression, autism. And the more we talk about it, the better everybody else's lives can be, right? Yeah, I, I really wish personally that the grief aspect of getting a late diagnosis is talked about more often within healthcare. And definitely your experiences highlight the general <laughs> inequity within healthcare uh, in terms of diagnoses and generally the lack of research. Um, about your program, did you happen to consider applying to other programs, as you mentioned, for example, clinical psych within Canada or abroad? Yeah, that's a really good question. And you know, if I were to do everything all over again, I would have applied to an NPH instead, because I feel like the Masters of Science in Global Health, well, yes, it's like one year. And if you do the thesis, they expect you to do it in a year and a half. But um, I would have done an MPH because it's more structured. There's sometimes like different core specializations or themes that are offered. And I felt like the content of the program in itself was very surface level. It's like, these were concepts that I knew like coming into the program. So I didn't feel like academics were challenged by the nature of the curriculum itself. So, and I think an MPH, well, it has like a, um, it is like a professional degree in itself, right? So it has that level of authority and credentials associated with it. So for example, if I were applying to work at Public Health Canada or PAC, I would have the appropriate courses associated with getting a job over there. Well, yes, it's still possible with the Masters of Science in Global Health, but I felt like I didn't get that at all. So I would have done, I would have applied to an MPH and, um, with typically like a specialization in epidemiology or just like policy, health policy as well. What would be the uh, key differences between global and public health? Great, you asked. Um, it really, so the way that I like to think about global health is that it has like that slant of international relations to it because you do examine power structures globally and how, for example, whatever an issue that you're analyzing across the globe is impacted by colonialism, imperialism, capitalism, whatever have you. But that isn't to say that you aren't looking at that if you have an MPH and you're looking more at the local level, but it's just that a global health program affords you to think abroad, which generally is the emphasis of the program. But yeah, the, I would say that is the main difference. But, you know, I do my own research focuses on populations in Canada. So it's like, yeah, I also do work. I also have the ability to think about issues that are happening across, like, for example, migration. But I also look at the local as well. So that, that would be the only distinction that I would say. Mm -hmm. Thank you for like highlighting both the overlap and the distinctions between these two fields. Uh, passing it off to Zaini for the next question. 
Yeah, um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Just to unpack this a little further, could you possibly share what someone with a degree in global health is able to do in case some of our viewers might be actually pursuing a background in this and there might be others who are unsure what they could actually do with a degree in global health? I'm happy that you asked that. There's so many things that you can do with it. Like I know the Masters of Science in Global Health over here has like three or four specializations. One is like global burdens of disease, which is like a light tinkering of epidemiology and then there's like um a health policy focus and then there's the other one which I think is like more on management again like my memory is a bit fraught I might not be recalling these as correctly but typically um you can see people going on into like looking working in like local public health organizations working within the context of like program development or evaluation for health interventions or even and going into health policy so there's that um, working at nonprofits in the local but also global sense but yeah there's a wide variety of things like hats that you can play with um, having a master's of science in global health in itself like it's it's typically like what you decide to do and the unique thing about the master's of science in global health is that it has like a practical component if you're in the coursework stream so you can pivot to any area that you'd like within that practicum. So I've seen people working at Public Health Canada. I've seen people working at like Access Alliance Multicultural Health Center in Toronto, for example, working um, for health promotion programs that they run. I've seen people work at nonprofits that focus on like literally health education, sexual literacy, for example, or working at an or, um, you know, organizations that are literally based on activism, for example, and talking about um, the inequities or just humanitarian healthcare ethics, for example. So it's it's a wide variety that you can, you're not like bound to anything really. It's a pretty versatile and dimensional degree that you can hold. And the mm -hmm. same goes for an MPH too, right? Right, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that it's dimensional because it seems that people can individualize it to their interests and skills uh, quite nicely. So um, it's not that they have to follow one rigid path or anything, they can, you know, cater it to whatever their passions are. Um, to pass it on to Emma to talk about a little bit of academia. Mm -hmm. uh, within your experiences within academia, um, about the teaching aspect specifically, are you currently an educator? I remember you mentioned that you're teaching your own course. If so, what are some of the personal growth and challenges that came out of this experience? Oh God, this is a really huge, huge question. Yeah. But I'm so thank thankful that you're at, like, it's a huge privilege to be an educator in itself. Like you're just, well, you are teaching students like contents of a course, but you're also helping them in their professional development and growth. So the course, it was recently launched, it's called Racism and Health and it's offered within the health sciences program. I know, um, Zani, I know that you mentioned that you came across it within our little notes, but yeah, this was a course that was launched as an initiative to try to make the health sciences program a bit more socially responsible. And through conversations that my, PhD supervisor had, I, my name was put forth. And so I ended up designing the course entirely from scratch. Like I was just given a course description, which is available on like the McMaster, like calendars um, registrar's office. And I was like, okay, what do I do with this course description? How do I make a 13 week course out of this? And so much of it was informed by previous conversations that I've had with people that I worked with, but also on my own lived experiences. Like for example, there's a week on invisible disabilities where I talk about chronic illnesses and mental health and how that's impacted by systemic racism. And generally the premise of the course is understanding how systemic racism plays 
is a is a functional determinant within the Canadian healthcare system and just when we think about health in general and illness and healing as well and how that impacts racialized communities specifically and disproportionately. And one of the core aspects of the course is taking an anti-racist approach and how do we solve these issues at the end of the day too, right? So, yeah. <laughs> it's Yeah, it's great to hear that um, a student can really bring their own perspectives and own uh, passions into this course, as well as to be assured by the different ways that they can like traditionally succeed within this course. But I do find it fascinating how uh, personally <laughs> I'm against like the quantification of personal learning and growth. And it's really fascinating that to see that within an educator's perspective as well. Um, another key part of academia is research. And some of the questions we have about that include why specifically a PhD? For example, what motivated you to get a PhD after a master's? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know with like typically a master's, like obviously like the field is changing, for example, like entry level jobs require a master's and even then it's harder to get anywhere. So I decided to do a PhD because I wanted to challenge myself even further and gain that sort of experience while I do my research. And obviously having a completely different advisor has shifted my views on accessing healthcare, for example, because of um, their background. Shout out to you, Lisa, I really appreciate you listening to this I don't know if you ever will but really appreciate you um yeah so obviously like to gain a leg up in the job market that was number one and I think that's a huge priority it's not you know like your passion or vibes aren't going to pay the bills at the end of the day so there's that um but there's the other aspect that I mentioned like critically challenging myself and growing as a researcher scholar and educator and number three I guess um I want to set a good example for my sisters right? I have two younger sisters. One is 11 and one is 15. Um, they have big dreams and I want them to show them, you know, it's possible that you can do anything that you want when you have support associated with it. Even if I have ADHD, even if I have like other, you know, health related issues, like I can try and I want them to see like it's possible. This because, is, yeah, this is so wholesome. <laughs> yes, are you gone? Oh, no, I just wanted to say, like, you know, I, I want them to see, say, like, it is possible that they can do it, too. And, you know, within, and I don't want to let them down. Yeah, I, I really love that you mentioned your family and your sisters and how you're kind of setting, like, a role model example for them, because um, it's so hard to see, like, you know, racialized youth and when they don't have examples in the world. So it's so nice to see that you are that way for your sisters and your family. I'm a bigger sister myself, so I know my siblings look up. And so although that comes with pressure, I do think it's so highly important and valuable. Um, I know also that you mentioned some tips about applying to the global health program just to shift a little bit um, to the side of research. What advice would you give to someone who is just starting their research career? Um, for example, like how to reach out to a professor or even a supervisor? Yeah, I guess one thing for me, it was very like abrupt, like getting into research, like I started in my second year, which I think is, I was very fortunate enough and obviously start what I did was like I emailed a few, well, before that I looked at everybody's like faculty department listing website, checked to see like their research labs and their websites and who was doing what. And I also paid attention to like, what was the composition of the lab? For example, like, is there primarily only like white students in there or are there also like racialized students, for example? Because I think I don't wanna be experiencing racism 
anywhere that I go in my life, right? So I want to try to like mitigate that, but it's not to assume that, oh, just because like the entire lab is white, I'm going to experience racism, but it's just goes to show like if there is a disproportionate representation happening and maybe I might not be as supported or understood correctly, for example. So those were two driving aspects, but once I sort of narrowed down who I wanted to work with, I sent them an email and then, you know, this was obviously before COVID. So I met up with them into their office and had like a nice chat. And that's how I got started in research. But I really suggest like heavily looking into like people's like publications, histories and seeing if this is the type of work that you see yourself doing in the future or not even directly, but this is an aspect that you sort of would like exploring. So there's that. And also don't be afraid to start emailing like in other universities as well. Like I started working at Guelph, for example, that was a really great experience in itself. And having an advisor at the, um, in undergrad, my advisor was a clinical psychologist and working with a social psychologist, it gave me another lens of like dimension to the way that I approach and think about research, but also concepts, for example, like individualism and collectivism, when you think about it from a clinical psychology perspective, it's very different from what a social psychologist would think. So don't be shy about emailing people from other universities. I know like in Toronto, you have like Ryerson, U of T, York, close neighboring by. So don't be afraid to like, don't, don't be bound by geography, essentially. So there's that other tip that I can give you. Mm -hmm. Definitely, because personally, that's how I started my uh, research career as well. And that's really interesting that you bring up looking at the composition of the volunteers, the current volunteers for the supervisor. Personally, I could have taken that advice as well. Moving on to the next question. Um, are there any research projects that you're currently leading or involved with at the moment? I am involved with quite a few things like for example at University of York I'm a graduate research fellow there and I sit on their racism and migration subcommittee so we're doing some really amazing work on that. Um, also sorry circling back to like that question also making sure like is it a paid position and asking what type of work that you're going to be doing if you're just doing like grunt work like data entry maybe that's not the type of like development that you want like that's also being transparent but also for I feel like this is really important for undergrads but depending on the type of work that you do, make sure to ask whether you'll have co-authorship on a paper. That is really important. I can't stress that enough for undergrads. I feel like with undergrads, it's like, you know, as long as I get research experience, like it's fine, but there is so much more that you can advocate for yourself and undergrads get exploited a lot in that sense. Like they could be running the entirety of the experiments, but they won't get authorship. So that's something that I highly suggest is like making sure to ask whether you're getting paid and what does your workload look like and also seeing like what the contributions of your you know work will be towards the development of like manuscripts or other like posters projects presentations for conferences too so just slipping that in there but yeah working at York um, I'm currently a co-PI on a WHO study looking at lessons learned for like the clinical trials being implemented for the solidarity vaccine. So it's a lot of like clinical community engagement work. Um, but personally for me, like I mentioned that I'm wrapping up some of my studies from my PhD work and Emma has shown interest in working with me and they're getting co-authorship on a paper that we're working on together. I'm very excited to be working with them. So if you're listening and you're interested in getting, you know, your hands wet or learning or literally getting writing experience on a manuscript on topics centralizing about documentation status or legal status and like 
accessing healthcare, mental health care specifically, feel free to reach out to me and I'd love to help and support you as part of your development and career as you apply to grad school too. So I'm open to that. Another question that our listeners may have is what are you doing after your PhD? That's like every PhD student's favorite question. <laughs> but I, you know, for your all your listeners, if you're thinking about doing a PhD, you don't have to go into academia after. I feel like that's the greatest lie that's ever been sold. Like you don't have to become a professor. I'm personally going into government. I work at the Ministry of Health as a policy and program analyst. So no, you don't have to become a professor at the end. You can go into industry, government, or work at a think tank. The world is your oyster with this PhD. Think of your PhD as sort of like a training for a four-year-long like training program, for example. Okay, so on to a little fun activity that we call No Nuance. Um, so this activity is actually very simple. We'll ask you a bunch of questions rapid fire style and you will respond with a few words. Are, are there any questions? No, I'm ready. All right, let's get started. All right, starting off spicy. Number one, is a hot dog a sandwich? Sandwich. Number two, coffee or tea? Tea. What? Number three, describe your academic experience in one word. Painful. <laughs> Love Relatable. that. Number four, who impacted you the most? My mom. Oh. Number five, most controversial non-political opinion in one sentence. Fruit doesn't go in dessert. What? <laughs> okay, you have that ready. Um, number six, favorite meme template. Anything with a crying cat. Okay, oh that's God. a big move. That's actually my that. yeah TikTok profile picture. <laughs> <laughs> um, number seven, most disliked email signature. Warmly. <laughs> Warmly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we weren't thinking of that. I think our um, Emma, yours was um, just best. best, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh my God, that's mine. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Or, Sorry. Yeah. Or for me, it's just like regards, but like no kind in front of it. <laughs> regards <laughs> yeah all right number eight describe how someone should approach potential supervisors in three words be very transparent mm. oh, smart yeah. number nine favorite study snack edamame is that how you pronounce it oh that's so. a good one yeah number 10 favorite time management strategy getting a really good planner mm. Mm. yeah any suggestions Actually, there was this one planner that was made for people with specific, not for specifically for ADHD, but the ADHD cult li really likes it. Um, I think it's called like, I'll, I'll, I'll send it later on, but All it's right. really neat, whatever. Thanks. Yeah, awesome. Uh, number 11, favorite course at Mac. I was allowed to make an independent study for my PhD. So I think that was my favorite one. We looked at um, legal context of, research ethics, including refugee youth. Oh, wow, that's great. Number 12, least favorite course at Mac. Um, if I speak, I'll be in trouble. Are, did you sign an NDA? <laughs> <laughs> no. okay. okay, we can skip we'll take, that. Yeah, number 13, Centro or La Piazza? Full candid honesty. <laughs> Neither. Smart. Ooh, neither. Okay. Number 14, favorite app. Um, let me just open my phone right now. I think it has to be the flip app, the one with the grocery flyers. I love that app. My mom uses that religiously. Great app. Um, and you can Auntie. get all the deals on there too. <laughs> Auntie vibes. 
Yep, exactly. <laughs> um, number 15, least favorite part about COVID. Systemic racism showing its ugly face once again. Yeah, for sure. Number 16, favorite artist. Lil Nas X. Oh, we love that. I- Amazing. <laughs> Number 17. Best advice for an incoming first year undergraduate or graduate student. Best advice for an incoming undergraduate student. Um be honest with yourself, really. Like don't give it to social norms and scripts. Yeah, honesty is key. I, I like that. Um 18. What's something you'd say to your past self in one sentence? I'm really sorry. Oh, <laughs> Uh, number 19 what's something you wish people would ask you more about it's a really hard one it's a really really tough one um you see this is what happens when you ask somebody from like a typical like collectivist culture should say something or think about themselves like well I don't know anything about myself actually (laughs) so I'm gonna pass on this one Okay, number 20 in our last one. How did this interview make you feel in one sentence? A bit hopeful. Oh, oh I love that. That's nice. Thank you. Thank you for participating in the activity, No Nuance. Uh, well, that's all for today. Thank you so much for joining us on our first episode of MMHS 30 and to our listeners for tuning in. If you'd like to get involved with our organization, we have several special events coming right up, including our bioethics discussion with Dr. Ebert on February 10th, the Volunteer Symposium, and our Let's Talk Research Conference. For more information, please check out our website at macmhs.ca. Do you have anything to promote, Zoa? Yeah, I feel like if you're interested in getting involved in authorship or working on some work together, working on some work together, um, you can go ahead and contact me at Zoha, Z-O-H-A-S, at McMaster.ca. I'm also co-president and co-founder of Critical Global Health here at McMaster. It's a group made for global health students focusing on critical iterative conversations about how do we advance our field and not just give away into the status quo of academia and other power structures you can follow us at critical.global.health at Instagram and see what we're up to. We actually have a really amazing PhD student speaker series coming up in February 11th. So we'd love for you to come. That's really cool. If listeners want to get in touch with you, where they can, uh, where can they do so? I think email would be the best, honestly. Mm-hmm. And I think I mentioned my email. Mm-hmm. Thanks again, folks, for tuning in today. We'll see you on our next episode.